Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi everyone and welcome to Location Matters. My name's Sarah Butler. I'm your host and I'm really excited because today we have Chad Jennings back on the podcast and I'm jumping straight in with that because Chad, we actually have statistics to say that our last season, which you featured on for the first time, which was the episode called, it's not called Big Data Anymore, it's just data, um, was one of our most listened to podcasts. So you're pretty popular with our listeners. So Chad, welcome back and we're really excited to have you here with us. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that the session we had last time uh, resonated with your listeners and uh, it's my pleasure to come back. Awesome. And um, anytime somebody talks to me about big data now, I, I like to correct them as well and just say, no, 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 it's just data. <laughs> and then we have Nathan Eaton on the podcast too. So Nathan is an executive director at NGIS, uh, but he also is the captain, I would call him the El Capitano of EO Data Science and is doing some pretty amazing work, which many of you have heard about. And if you haven't listened to our podcast before, we have a lot of really great episodes about um, EO Data Science and the great work that they're doing. So Nathan, thank you for being here once again. I appreciate you getting up early at Odark 100 and being here with me to do this. Yep, thanks for having me, Sarah. Good to be on here with Chad. So Chad, since we spoke to you last, which I believe was last year, that was with Dion from Lively and also Matt Forrest from Cardo. You guys were about to go to a big summit, I thought, and um, present, it was a spatial data science conference, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, you were only a week away from that. So how's life been with you? How's things? Uh, busy uh, and for all the right reasons. You know, since that last conversation, we and, and Cardo have been engaged uh, quite deeply with their um, their BigQuery Tyler, which was the thing, like we launched that to beta at uh, Google Cloud Next over the summer. And then it launched to GA, just as you mentioned, a week after our last uh, podcast. And so that's been that's been a real eye opener for folks, um, as it you know it manages to leverage the power that comes inside of BigQuery and its geospatial offerings with Cardo's know how about visualization to enable folks to visualize data sets that have like the, honestly the largest demo I've seen has been 10 billion points in an interactive map, and we can talk about how it operates a little bit, but you know that's a mind blowing volume of data to have on a screen. Yeah, absolutely. We've been keeping tabs on all of that too. I know we have engineers here who are really excited about the BigQuery Cardo connector and we've seen it been working in practice. We did a really, really cool demo of um, bringing Google Analytics data live straight into BigQuery and then using that to visualise travel data post-pandemic um, in using Cardo through BigQuery and that was really, really awesome to see um, how the travel industry has been coping and how we can see people purchasing in, I guess, the tourism sense, now that there is a little bit more freedom to move around. So the Cardo BigQuery connector has been really, really awesome, but I know it doesn't stop there. There are so many other connections with GIS technology that you've been working on, but we'll come to that in just a moment. I want to pass to you now, Nathan, because I know you and Chad have been, well, in cahoots with each other and collaborating on some pretty great projects. What's been the latest with EO Data Science and NGIS now that we're in 2021? Yeah, it's been a big last 12 months for a number of reasons. In terms of the, the work that we're doing with, with Chad and the broader Google team, we've been collaborating on some super exciting uh, sustainable supply chain initiatives that are really working with organisations to modernise their geospatial workflows 
particularly looking at global supply chains and leveraging large data sets and really complex networks to actually understand um, those supply chains in more detail. So that's been really exciting for us. And from an EO perspective, our team's been really busy supporting uh, 32 projects over 25 countries as part of the, the Google Earth Engine and Geo program. So we're basically, Google is providing Google Earth Engine licensing to these 32 projects and we're providing capacity building support and mentoring to help them leverage Google Earth Engine for some amazing projects. So projects focused on uh, sustainable development, biodiversity, conservation, disaster risk reduction, um, some amazing organisations, projects such as AquaWatch, TransEarth, looking at reforestation in Costa Rica. So really privileged to be to part of their journey and, and how they're using um, Google Earth Engine. So it's been a big 12 months and, I mean, geospatial, I don't think it's ever not been a high focus area for organisations, but we're certainly seeing more attention to geospatial from organisations that aren't your traditional kind of enterprise geo player. So that's also really exciting for us, being able to make an impact for those types of organisations. Yeah, and let me let me jump in with a little bit of why I, I think that's happening, because I think you're exactly right. There are organisations that are realising they need to understand uh, risks to their supply chain or risks to their investment portfolio or, uh, you know, risks to their, you know, individual SKUs <laughs> in their like retail, in their retail establishments. And one of the, one of the thought leaders, and I'm actually referencing Larry Flink, the BlackRock CEO and his annual letter to CEOs came out with a statement said like, if you don't understand the climate risk to your portfolio slash supply chain slash list of SKUs, you actually don't understand the risk, the investment risk to that portfolio. And what's really significant about that is that was a real bellwether to you know to folks like, wow, I, I need to I need to get my arms around this. I need to understand how climate, how sustainability impacts like my bottom line. You know, business schools have been talking about triple bottom line businesses where you look at like economic, environmental, and social impact. But really, Wall Street still primarily operates on economic impact. And when, you know, when Mr. Flink wrote this letter, he really tied the environmental impact to that economic impact in a way that hadn't been done before. So that's one of the reasons why we are seeing a lot of companies have a look at, well, how do I get my arms around this? What tools are there? Oh, there's Google Earth Engine. Oh, there's BigQuery. What data is out there? And so this notion of figuring out how to assess this climate risk is a really hot and growing topic right now. It's, it's only going to get hotter. Pun completely unintended <laughs> with the climate change thing. I can't believe I just did that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that was awesome. But I'm excited about this. I want to talk about this just a little bit more. Watching these tools and technologies get into the hands of people who are really trying to solve massive global environmental problems. I feel like we're in this period of time right now where we're on the precipice of big change. I think there are probably a lot of people who have wanted to to have an impact um, and haven't known how to do that. And that's why I think the GOGEE program is so exciting, Nathan, because what we're seeing is people getting the training and the tools that they need to, to enact this change. And, and these companies, they're all sitting up now and they're taking notice. And they're, like Chad said, they're all standing up and saying, oh, hang on a minute, we could be doing this too. So I just think that we're on this really exciting, yeah, cliff face, if you will. We're all about to to 
realise the power of geospatial in the, the global environmental question, I suppose. So it yeah. really depends on which side of the cliff face you're on. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to go back to the technology for a minute because I know we're going to talk a little bit more about environmental impacts and um, the power of Google technology in that specifically we're talking about BigQuery and we're talking about um, visualization within BigQuery from a geospatial perspective. Before you move to the technology, let's, let's click into the point, the good point that you just made, like, because we see more demand, corporate demand for these questions about climate risk, your point is really good about, well, how do folks that, you know, could be doing that analysis, either businesses or individuals who want to tool up to answer those questions, Google Earth Engine, BigQuery GIS, right? These are excellent technologies to research, learn how to use and get proficient in it because the demand for the answers to the problems that these tools can answer is going up. Hence the demand for people skilled in using these tools is going up. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But what's really awesome as well on that point, geez, Chad, I feel like we could do this all day long, is choice. It's choice within that platform about how you display this information and how you want to share it and that's why this is really cool that we can get together and talk like this because Nathan you're here from us I guess a solutions perspective and being able to bring all this you know disparate data together and make sense of it and visualize it beautifully but also Chad from that Google perspective and the technology and people having you know the tools at their hands now and being able to use that is that we're in this new wave now this next generation where there are so many more options within the Google Cloud environment, particularly where people can actually choose that technology that they want to visualize their data, you know, for a geospatial purpose. Um, what I'm talking about is the fact that until Google Cloud really put focus on this, geospatial technologies weren't really that compatible with cloud environments and being able to scale up from a data perspective and really quickly visualize what's going on with that data. So what I want to ask you about, Chad, is after really focusing on the Cardo thing, and we just talked about that with BigQuery Cardo Connector, I know you guys have looked at safe software with the FME integration. Is there any more news around geospatial technology compatibility within Google Cloud Platform? Yeah, um, there's, there's news within Google Cloud Platform and there's news outside, like, the, the product strategy that I set with the BigQuery team last year was to focus on features that would enable partners. Um, like even simple things like implementing ST Simplify so that partners could simplify polygons, like partners who are running VizTools, Cardo, others, could you know, simplify polygons to create a tiling engine to render you know, vast volumes of, uh, of polygons. So that's one example of a feature that we implemented to enable partners. That worked really well. So Cardo implemented the Tyler. Esri, like talking about a different, uh, you know, a, a different category of geospatial analysis tool, Esri is building integrations with BigQuery. Um, you know, these are publicly available documents. We can put links in the in the session notes below. Um, you know, FME has invested in BigQuery emitters as well. So we're seeing the partner community both from like, you know, you call it young companies like Cardo and more established companies like Esri, realizing that the engine to get to big data analytics in Geo is by integrating with the cloud, in particular BigQuery. So just on the Esri point there, Chad, 
where do you think the real value is for organisations that are already using Esri to start looking at what they could achieve by deploying Esri in the Google Cloud? Because there are a lot of people using Esri, a lot. Yeah, and, you know, Esri is a phenomenal product, right? You know, Esri's been in the market for 37 years. They've been focused on geospatial analytics for all of that time. They know the industry better than anybody else, myself included, and, you know, and they've got incredible product market fit. So our strategy at Google is to build like the same way it is with Cardo, the same way it is with our other Viz partners. We want to make the infrastructure that allows Esri to scale like Esri's never been able to scale before. And so Esri is building connectors, you know, to Google Cloud. You can, you know, you can run Esri on uh, Google Cloud Compute, and uh, Esri products are building integrations directly to. BigQuery so that you can visualize and manipulate data using, you know, in an Esri UI that exists underneath in BigQuery. So like these kinds of integrations are going to unlock all sorts of scale barriers that have previously hindered people. I want to explore this a little bit more in terms of Google's position when it comes to geospatially enabling all sorts of users um, to use Google Cloud Platform. Why is it important? To Google, why are you guys investing time and energy into to these geospatial integrations? What is it? Because I don't see, you know, this kind of enablement happening with other providers. Well, Google's got very deep geo roots, right? You know, Google Maps, it's got more than a billion users. Um, the data that goes into Google Maps, right? That's something that Google itself spends a lot of effort curating. So like there, there's a lot of geospatial DNA inside our company. And Google also hired folks like me who come from navigation, who come from geospatial backgrounds and who understand how important it is for people that need to work with this data and how big a gap it was say two years ago before we launched support inside of BigQuery. So, you know, we definitely see this as an important way, A, to contribute financially to the platform because these are big data sets and they're important and to contribute societally and environmentally because you know it's it's very natural for geospatial problems to have you know public sector right huge user of geospatial they're solving problems to enable their constituents like the people that live in their city to get better access to service so like geospatial problems i think more than maybe other types of analytics have a natural tendency to support societal environmental good like as well as economic good and so like these are all reasons why google thinks it's important to invest yeah i don't want to digress too much from like talking about um you know the technology side of things but to your point chad i actually just was reading one of the the eo data science blogs that um, someone in my team was was working on and that's exactly what we saw happening so that was addis ababa um you know the urban crops and, you know, supplying food and um, to that city. And what we were seeing was that they were using Google Earth Engine to and geospatial um, analysis to actually show an inf- the government and influence policy around urban sprawl to make sure that these areas are protected so that there will be enough food supply for their citizens. So it's pretty amazing to see in action how policy is being impacted by through the power of geospatial. And I remember reading that and just thinking, wow, like imagine like how much more good could be being done using you know this and it's pretty powerful but like yeah, I said, I'm actually interested to hear Nathan's point on this like I definitely get inspired by the problems people are solving with geospatial infrastructure you know that I and my partners are, are working on 
you know, we talked about, you know, supply chain sustainability, you know, limiting deforestation. Um, that, that's a project that Google's working on. Um, we talked about, as you just said, urban farms. But Nathan, you must have a few, a few of these in your hip box. Like, you know, what kinds of problems inspire you? Because they're just worthwhile things to do in the world. Yeah, for sure. And both of those examples are really where we focus most of our effort. It's all around going from the top of the funnel, which is where the data sits and the data starts, to the bottom of the funnel, which is where the impact happens. So for the food security example that Sarah brought up um, in Africa, the challenge there is taking all of the data from um, the European Space Agency that's available from these large satellite programs, government funded, but turning them into actionable insights. So it's that impact on policy. That's really where you see the value of all of this work. Um, the same with sustainable supply chain work that we're doing. It starts with mapping and understanding the supply chain, which is inherently very complex, particularly for supply chains that are traditionally very opaque um, in their governance and regulation. But all the work in mapping the supply chain, understanding the movements, really where it makes an impact is when understanding that supply chain makes procurement decisions. So understanding right. your sustainability metrics that can inform which suppliers you actually source your products from, that's the impact. So for all of these projects we're working with, really the art is in taking the opportunity that the data presents um, and then understanding what those metrics and answers are that are going to give you the impact. And we've seen that across the board with a number of projects. Yeah, and seeing the difference between, you know, like, you know, public sector projects can take a little while to go, like to do the analysis to influence policy especially depending on the scale of the municipality or the scale of the, call it administration boundary, like towns can do it in a few months, cities in a few years, nations over the course of a decade. What's exciting about what you just said is that corporations, like even big slow corporations move a lot faster than governments. So you know, they're in a position to turn these analytics results into procurement decisions much, much faster than you know, public sector policy can be developed and come to fruition. So, you know, we should do both, but it's exciting to see one of these dimensions emerge because it can go fast. Yeah, and those organisations, as you're talking about there, Chad, some of them don't have a lot of legacy GIS and traditional GIS. So they're being able to leapfrog straight to where those insights and answers need to be and take advantage of, say, cloud technology to get there rather than having to try and retrofit what should be in a cloud world now back to their traditional kind of on-prem GIS approach. So we're seeing kind of two streams of, of those organisations that are leapfrogging um, and getting tremendous value really quickly. But then also those other organisations that do have the traditional GIS that need to find ways to modernise because there's more data to use, there's more demand from their users and what they need to produce. We kind of have both of those streams at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I wanted to explore a little bit more deeply with you, Nathan, because I think if we if you wouldn't mind elaborating more on that, because the legacy GIS question is a really important one. These really well-established corporations, they're big, you know, they do like they've got places all over the world where they operate in many instances. How are you seeing attitudes towards using or harnessing the power of geospatial within the cloud? Because, you know, you've been doing this for a really long time now and you have been around since, you know, pre-cloud and, you know, that legacy GIS and, and not having this as an option. How are you seeing those attitudes change? Are people, you know, quite forthcoming with this topic and, and having to uproot those legacy GIS and, and be able to scale and not be limited by, you know, the way they used to do things? 
You're making me feel pretty old there, Sarah, but you I'm are sorry. Right. I didn't right. want to give anything away about Nathan and like yeah, how long he's age. been in this industry, but there it is, people. Well, I was in the industry when yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in the industry when Google Earth was called Keyhole, so that's showing my age. Um, yeah, look, with cloud technology, it is a change management process for many organizations that do have a large amount of traditional on-prem GIS. But for us, when we're looking at what cloud technology provides geospatial workflows, three key things. It's simplicity, it's scale, and it's the ability to innovate. So simplicity in terms of doing things quicker than you would have ever done before, and whether it's writing 20 lines of code to actually produce a cloud-free mosaic across the world using Sentinel-2 data from the European Space Agency, or simply spinning up uh, new code to do massive data wrangling with BigQuery. Um, we're no longer having to provision new VMs to start the process. It's completely changed into how you would actually go from start to finish in terms of a workflow. And that scale. So a lot of the organisations we work with, they're looking to adopt cloud because they do have global supply chains. They do have global interests. They do have a need to take advantage of the Sentinel program from the European Space Agency, the Landsat program from, from NASA. So they want to take advantage of all of this data available. And that's just the public data. If you then go into satellite imagery from Planet Airbus, um, they have all this data available and they want to take advantage of that opportunity. They want to use this global high-cadence data to then produce the insights that are going to be actionable and make an impact for their organisation. And the only way to do that at scale is with cloud. There's really no other way to do it. Um, so simplicity, scale, and you put those together and it equals innovation in many ways. You open up new workflows, new possibilities that you weren't even thinking about when you first started this journey. And if that doesn't get you across the line, we work with organisations looking at costs. So purely looking at workflow costs that they currently have, evaluating different cloud options, um, and then implementing a solution that is significantly lower cost in terms of total cost of ownership and also just raw cost than it was previously. Um, and for anyone that's not familiar with BigQuery and what you can do for such a small cost, it's, it's amazing. So they're the kind of things that we're seeing really take hold in why you want to go up to cloud. But I think, I think that, and that's great, but I think that there's also the question of like cloud providers, as in plural, on the market, um, all of them, I'm sure, can ingest and, and, you know, process geospatial data. And I know it would be silly of us not to acknowledge that with these larger corporations, there are probably many silos and people working in different systems and how that impacts the kind of solutions that you could build with your team. I want to ask about the multi-cloud environment thing, because... I feel like it's just a practical note to, to bring up. How do you navigate that? Is it commonplace now? Yeah. So I can take this first unless you wanted to, to talk about this one, Chad. No, have a swing. Have a swing. So first of all, I do need to call out, I've worked closely with the Google team for over a decade, so I am completely biased. But I'd like to think that uh, that bias is, is an educated type of bias. Um, with multi-cloud environments, I think there was a great blog from Google last year, um, and one of the quotes was, the future is not cloud future is multi-cloud and they had some stats there from Gartner that 81% uh, of organisations are currently working with two or more public cloud providers. So there's already an acceptance I think in industry and organisations that multi-cloud is absolutely the direction and I kind of liken this to the work that we do with satellite imagery um, where we think at the moment you kind of be crazy to only get satellite imagery from one provider because there's so many different providers with different value propositions. So from a planet looking at really high cadence, um, looking at high quality from providers such as Maxar and Airbus, um, taking advantage of 
low-cost, openly available data from government organisations, why wouldn't you use it all? And tip and queue applications to use the, the best content for where you need it. And I think that's really analogous to, to the cloud. Um, and so we do a lot of work with organisations that are actually implementing Google as the dedicated uh, geospatial cloud because it's got completely unique assets. So Chad talked around BigQuery and Google Earth Engine before. From a geospatial point of view, these are completely unique. So we do get comments from organisations, you know, every cloud is the same, it's just playing for compute and storage in a different way. Um, and it's actually, it's not true, particularly when it comes to geospatial. And Google just make it easy. So they've committed to developing and then opening up a number of technologies like Kubernetes, TensorFlow. They're all in, invented by Google. Open source are now being leveraged significantly by other cloud providers. And so uh, Google's continued work with Anthos, Apogee, BigQuery, Omni, they're very much built for that multi-cloud approach, which is good. Yeah, I'll just I'll just tag on there a little bit. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, Google uh, readily acknowledges and and is even you know leading the thought leadership that the world is a multi-cloud environment. Sure, there are companies that just use one, but the vast majority use use multiple. The vast majority of companies also use multiple like other technologies. Like we see large companies that maybe grow by acquisition, like, you know, part of their annual growth is organic and part of it is by acquisition. You know, when they acquire a new company in a different part of the world, they acquire that company's, you know, customer's revenue, but actually legacy tech stack as well. So like, you know, company A bought company B and now they've got this, you know, Teradata thing, or they've got a Vertica thing, or now they, they bought them and they also using AWS. Like, so like these, these crazy block diagrams start emerging from this kind of evolution. We see it all the time. So it's a fact of our time. Google's strategy is we're just going to build these massively differentiated products. And thank you, Nathan, for, uh, for giving us a vote of confidence there that will make people want to come use our products, but we're not going to like mandate and we're not going to make it, you know, hard to use our stuff and other clouds, et cetera. Like we're just going to make better stuff and folks are going to want to use it. So let me tag on to what you said about BigQuery Omni, right? Th this is a, a very much a, you know, put your money where your mouth is Google. If that's your attitude, then, you know, what are you doing? So BigQuery Omni is actually, we took the BigQuery binary, right? The executable of BigQuery, and then we wrapped it with a Kubernetes bucket and we we're deploying it inside of AWS. So if you use BigQuery Omni and you have data on AWS, you can actually write your BigQuery query like you you you're typing in the UI, but that UI, the BigQuery UI and executable is running on AWS and referencing data locally in S3. And so like we'll be launching on Azure coming up in a little bit here. And so, you know, that is our, you know, testament to what you said, like, yeah, it's a multi-cloud world and it's so multi-cloud that we're going to make sure that part of our cloud runs in other clouds. So if you like working in, you know, with the differentiation that BigQuery is, but you don't want to move your data off where it, uh, you know, where it's residing, fine, we'll bring the compute to your data. It's interesting, I think, about the restrictive nature in which some technology providers have worked in the past. And you can understand why organisations, especially big ones, go into a technology partnership and they're like a bit like scared or maybe reserved about well, what's this going to mean? If we start doing it like this, is it going to stop us from doing something like this in the future? So it must be music to the ears of some of these larger 
organisations that want to make change that, you know, you're not going to get locked into something that's going to potentially screw you up later down the track. So that's a really good point to note. But uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff here today. Like I'm, I'm really excited to publish this podcast because I think people are going to really be excited about what we're talking about from a business perspective, but also from an individual's perspective. And um, I guess we've touched on both of those things, which are really important about how we can be harnessing geospatial in both use cases. Um, but I want to kind of start wrapping up on what's next, especially from your perspective, Chad. You guys have been working on some pretty cool projects. I mean, I really encourage any of our listeners to just go follow um, Google Earth in particular, um, and they're just doing some absolutely amazing work. But what have you got coming up at the moment, and what does the next few months at Google look like for you, Chad? Well, uh, you're right. It is an exciting time for the market-driving reasons that we discussed earlier. Um, for, For us inside of BigQuery and inside of Google, you know, as I mentioned, our strategy last year was to develop features that would enable partners. And that was pretty successful given some of the names that we've discussed already. Um, our strategy this year is we really want to focus uh, on users. And so what do users need to build more or to be more successful? The answer is like they need more verbs, more SQL verbs, so more functions. And so that's where we are doubling down in the next several months. The engineering team is focused on developing um, functions. So like if there's a function you want, go to the BigQuery public issue tracker and submit a uh, feature request. Um, that'll actually get routed directly to me and we can triage it and, and assign it. But we're working with our largest customers. We're working with our smallest customers you know, to assemble this backlog and, and, and try to get some more, um, more SQL verbs, mo- more post GIS verbs implemented directly inside of BigQuery. Um, I, we've got some other really good stuff in the hopper that I cannot talk about. Um, no. Go on, Chad, do it. <laughs> do I it. can't, I can't. It's, it's, looking, it's, looking like, it, it's looking like we're going to have some really fun stuff to talk about at Google Cloud Next in October. You know, things that tie together assets from all over the company. So um, I really, uh, I, I encourage folks to like follow, actually it wasn't necessarily Google Earth, although they had some launches in the last couple of weeks that are mind-blowing. Their, um, you know, their 3D time lapse uh, features that launched, but uh, follow Google, um, follow Google Cloud, follow Google, Google Earth Engine. You can follow me. I tweet about uh, geospatial stuff a lot. I'm at CWJO2, and um, like, there's just a lot of good stuff coming up. That's really good to hear. What about you, man? Yeah. What about you, Nathan? What's happening with your team? What's coming up for you guys? Um, lots. So we're continuing the work with the Geo program and Google Earth Engine. Really excited about basically working and partnering with organisations to operationalise some of the, the new technology that Chad talked about. So a lot more work within the digital twin space, the 3D space that's extending geospatial, but then also partnering with organisations to modernise their geospatial workflows, which on the surface might sound a little bit vanilla, but when you get under the hood of what you can then do when you modernise those geospatial workflows and the new insights you can actually deliver, that's when our team gets pretty excited. Um, Doing a lot of work within supporting Indigenous communities, which I know you're involved with a lot, Sarah. Man, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I've got stuff to share, but I can't. But yes, Indigenous Australian communities, there's really cool things happening. I'm so excited. Yeah, and so that's great, so supporting that team. So so as an organisation, we're geospatial at heart, but we're really diverse in the different industries and initiatives that we support. And it really value the partnership with Google because they're very impact-focused 
Um, so the sustainability work that we're doing there is very much part of our DNA and, and obviously part of Google's DNA. So really excited about where we're going to take that in the future. So we, we also, um, just for our listeners, we, we did touch on a few different resources um, that the guys mentioned throughout this podcast. So one of them, Nathan, was the future is not cloud, it is multi-cloud Google blog. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. And Chad, you just mentioned um, a big query issue razor or something. What was that? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a way that the public can submit feature requests directly to the BigQuery product management team. So we can drop that link. Um, yeah, that'll be awesome. You know, as we prep, like I think we've got about half a dozen things that would be uh, interesting reading if you found the. If you're still listening at this point, you're <laughs> probably interested in the links. Is there anything else you wanted to share with listeners? Like I'm, I think anyone that might be interested in, in learning a little bit more about some of the things we spoke about today, Chad. Um, well, sure. Like I, I would just recommend if you're if you're interested in this topic. Um, like there's a lot of good content coming up. I published some of it. So if you search for me, you can see some videos that I've recorded over a while uh, or articles that I've written. Um, if you just search for the, the word BigQuery and geospatial in your very favorite search engine, um, then you'll get a, like the first hits are ones that are really relevant to the topics that we're, we've been talking about here about like, you know, the documentation pages and BigQuery and some interesting use cases. So, you know, I just, I just hope that folks, the, you know, folks who are listening uh, are keen to learn a little bit more um, and school up, skill up a little bit because, you know, the tide is rising for this stuff. It's fun, especially for Nathan and me, like those of us who've been in this world for a long, long time. Um, it's neat to be in, it, it, you know, it's neat to be on the like top of the cliff at Sarah, as opposed to clinging to the cliff face. <laughs> Do we have time for some personal questions for Chad? Of course. Uh, oh, it, not if you're going to ask him if he's a folder or a scruncher. No, not going to do that. Okay, thank um, you. <laughs> but so Sarah's got some questions for me to ask you, Chad. So you're based in Seattle? Yeah, yeah. So two questions. Uh, so is your favourite TV show Grey's Anatomy um, and is your favourite band Pearl Jam being from yours from Seattle? And do you like Starbucks coffee? Um, so no, I like them a lot. <laughs> and COVID has spoiled me for Starbucks. <laughs> but so so, no, I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. Uh, I love Pearl Jam. As a matter of fact, Eddie Vedder lives only a couple of miles uh, from me. Get out! Um, okay. No, it's true. It's true. Um, I've never, I've never met the man, but, uh, but I, I hear that's true. And then, um, yeah, as far as Starbucks, like I don't go to Starbucks that much anymore. So I learned how to make espresso myself, and I got to tell you. I got pretty, you know, doing it twice a day for a year. I got pretty good at it. So, yeah, I don't Love go that. to Starbucks anymore. That's the only way to fly. Speaking of flying, so you have uh, a mask. I didn't plan these questions. You said I did. I did not plan these, these questions, Chad. These are, these are all from Sarah Butler. Um, so you have a master's and a PhD in aeronautics and astronautics. How does that lead you to what you're doing with Big Career Google today? Yeah, yeah, card-carrying rocket scientist. Um, first of all, I got to say that this is a very exciting time to be a space buff with all the stuff going on, like helicopters flying on Mars. You've got to be kidding me. This is awesome. <laughs> My son is eight and he and I spend a lot of time aerospace nerding out and it's just so fulfilling. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I always loved airplanes and at one point I wanted to be an astronaut. And so like, well, what do you do if you want to be an astronaut? Well, you go get a PhD. That seems reasonable. So that's what I did. Um, saying it now, it doesn't seem like the most natural of life choices, but that's how it went. 
And then afterwards I got into startups and I did startups. My PhD was about um, navigation and navigation processing uh, and pilot displays. And so that led me to do some startups in avionics. And I did one startup, developed one product, uh, sold it to a large avionics manufacturer, which was really great, really lucky that it, uh, we had a success there. Um, but that whole thing took like 15 years. And at the end of it, I'm like, well, that's not fast enough, one product in 15 years. So um, that ended up leading me to get into big data and into Google where like the scale that you operate at is just so much bigger. Like at my, you know, in aerospace, if you sell one in a year or two, you're popping champagne courts, right? You know, you know, the scale numbers of, a, you know, adoption, like number of customers and number of bytes processed and whatnot, you know, are growing so fast inside of Google cloud that it's just a really dynamic um, and exciting place to work. A little stressful too, I got to admit, but, uh, but pretty darn cool. Awesome. It was great to have you on the podcast, Chad. It really was. Thank you, Chad. We we always appreciate your time. And like Nathan mentioned, like I guess um, for you, Chad, you said that you know you started learning how to make your own coffee during COVID and things like that. But we got really good at being able to run podcasts and produce these with people all over the world. So it does mean a lot to us. You're here. It especially means a lot to us that we're able to to do it this way um, as well. And have you? We've got you up on the big screen in front of us, so it's like you're here in the room with us. Um, and we hope, I'm thinking, after Google Next, we should do like like a decompress together and meet up again after Google Next so we can talk about all that cool stuff you did not tell us today <laughs> um, and, and have a chat about that. Yes, if we could do um, Chad plus Eddie Vedder on the same. Oh, Eddie Vedder. How, how, how cool would that be? <laughs> Is he into geospatial? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> I don't know. I do I do play guitar and ukulele, so maybe we could do a geospatial sing-along with Eddie Vedder. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, definitely. I'll do the triangle. I love That's it. That's a bucket list thing right there. <laughs> Eddie, if you're listening, call me. <laughs> Okay, guys, well, that is all we have time for. Again, thanks, guys. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Chad. Um, and if anybody um, on the podcast, um, listening on the podcast today, rather, is enjoying what you're hearing, you can go and subscribe to us and you can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.